All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? We have a special introductory offers. Uh, those of you who have not tried these newsletters are invited to do so at a vastly reduced price. Call my assistant, Claudio Bassi, at 718-457-1426. 718-457-1426. That's Claudio Bassi. You can reach him there at that number during the regular business hours, Monday through Friday. Also, you can go to our website at miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Uh, to sign up for these uh, special introductory offers as well as the regular uh, offers that we have. The best website to go to to follow everything that I do is jtaylormedia.com. That's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R media, M-E-D-I-A.com. You can access this radio show from there. You can access all three of those newsletters I just mentioned. You can also uh, see some videos, some video interviews that I've done with companies, uh, CEOs of mining companies. In fact, I just finished videoing 14 different, mostly junior mining companies up in uh, Vancouver this past weekend. Many of those will be making their way onto J. Taylor Media in the near future. Also, I am frequently uh, on BNN in Canada. That's Canada's business network, as well as uh, occasionally on CNBC and Fox. I want to thank our sponsors uh, for making the show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, they are Gold Bullion Development, Crocodile Gold, North Atlantic Resources, Cobray Resources, Brigus Gold, and Palangio Exploration. I also want to thank each of you for listening to this show, for telling your friends. Uh, it is uh, the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. We're very proud of that. We're very grateful to you for your, uh, for your attention and for listening in every week. Well, this week we have two featured guests. They are David Skarika. Uh, he's a fellow newsletter writer who I'm, I've learned to know quite well over the years. David and I have been on quite a few panel discussions at one time or another. We speak at various investment conferences. Um, as I say, David is a newsletter writer, but he's also uh, comes from the Austrian school of economic thinking, pretty much so anyway. And uh, I guess that's probably a general theme on this show, mostly Austrian thinkers that find their way uh, and talk to you every week here. David believes that the current global economic problems will work themselves out through the, for the, through the fires of hyperinflation. 
So uh, he will have some advice to you on how you can protect yourself and possibly even gain uh, wealth uh, during the, uh, from the carnage that the Federal Reserve has induced on us with uh, massive amounts of money created out of nothing. Our second main guest this week will be Florian Siegfried. He's the CEO of Precious Capital Limited. That's a privately held firm based in Zurich, Switzerland, that specializes in precious metals and mining investments. Precious Metals has very uh, recently been ranked by the Wall Street Journal Europe as one of the leading top 10 fund managers in the precious metals equity sector. Uh, Mr. Siegfried, uh, Siegfried was formerly a CEO of Shape Capital Limited, a publicly traded investment company founded by Julius Baer uh, and Company in Zurich. Uh, I first met Florian in Singapore about a year and a half ago. I was sitting on the stage, actually next to my buddy Chen Lin, who also traveled with me to Singapore, listening to Florian. <clears throat> excuse me, and I thought I must have written Florian's speech for him. Uh, he is very much an Austrian thinker, but he and I—I uh, I have never found somebody that thinks more closely to to me uh, or I to him with respect to what we think, uh, how we think it may play out. And somewhat differently than David Skarika, uh, Florian and I both are more on the deflation side. Well, time will tell. One thing we all do agree on is that what we are involved in is a pathological global economic system that is based on forced uh, use of currency, fiat money, instead of letting the markets decide what money is instead of letting you and me decide what we, how we want to trade with our partners. But politicians at the point of a gun are telling us that we have to use fiat currency. Fiat currency is created out of thin air. It allows those who, create, who control the system to siphon off wealth away from those who produce it, from the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, the inventors, people who really do something good for you and me. They're being robbed, and the bankers are getting richer and richer well, there's a reason why, and the politicians are in on the take, too. So we're all forced to use fiat money. The Austrian School of Economics says, bad deal. We need to be using, uh, we need to be using the market's choice of money, and that has all, always been historically. When the market is free to choose, it's been uh, tangible assets, and most, uh, most often it's gold and silver. Well, so both Siegfried and uh, Skarika will be with us later in the hour. Uh, David will be with us at around 2.30 Eastern Time, about 20 minutes or so from now. Florian will be joining us uh, at around uh, 3.30 from Zurich, uh, Switzerland. Now, during the last half hour of today's show, Vancouver-based investment analyst Ted Ohashi will be joining me to talk about a micro-cap company in Armenia with a historical resource of a million ounces of gold and 50 million ounces of silver, this company, I'm told, is, has a market cap of only about $5 million, so I'm really looking forward to hearing what Ted has to say about that. Uh, before we get to our two main guests, I have with me my two partners, Chen Lin and Roger Wiegand. Welcome, Roger. Welcome, Chen. Thank you, Thank Jay. You, Jay. Really good to have both of you with me uh, at the same time. Uh, Chen, I'd like to start with you. Um, you and I were talking a little earlier today. One of your favorite stock picks has been... Oceana Gold. Now, we've seen Oceana get hit pretty hard recently, uh, but I understand you still like it. Let's uh, talk to us a little bit about what has taken Oceana down in price, uh, in your view, and why you still like it. Yeah, um, the company, basically, they raise money, and that's actually knocked the stock momentum, you know, knocked a lot of momentum trader off. 
and uh, they are uh, they this year they also announced that the cost will increase because they are doing a lot more pre-stripping in New Zealand mining operations. So, uh, Chen, Chen, could I just interrupt for one second? Could you talk a little bit louder? I'm having a little difficulty hearing you. Okay. Yes. Um, that's I'm just saying. Uh, the the company's mining cost is higher this year because they are mm-hmm. doing some pre-stripping in New Zealand operations, and then their new mine in the Philippines won't be up running until starting next year. So there's just this uh, vague moment. You know, there's not much excitement coming from the company. The stock was a star performer of mine, so it was running up very quickly from like 40, 50 cents all the way to four dollars. Mm-hmm. So now it's coming down to the earth. So all the momentum players are, are leaving the table. So I, actually, I, uh, as I re- review in my news site, I reduced some uh, early this year, just a part of uh, you know reduce a uh, little bit gold exposure. But I'm start buying it back just recently, just uh, starting last week. Uh, mm-hmm. So because I see right now they are trading about three to four times cash flow. Mm-hmm. Okay, for a mining company, for major mining company producing almost three three hundred thousand ounces of gold per year, mm-hmm. that's a very undervalued. I mean, you mm-hmm. you can see company trading at ten, fifteen times cash flow, where they own tra- trading at three and four times. Plus, they are uh, in the New Zealand operation; they become a cash cow, so they just. Uh, operation keep coming out with cash because their major capex are behind them in New Zealand. Okay, their expending spending is quite low, so they can uh, accumulate. I calculate over a hundred million um, a year in cash coming out of wow. New Zealand. So it, it's it's like those stock. Like right now, nobody like because the chart looks terrible, but the company each month is generating. I estimate almost twenty million. Free cash flow. It's not just wow. cash flow. Free cash flow. It's just the cash just increasing every month. Mm. So I, I see it. It's a it's a safe one because it's hard for them to go down because you're accumulating cash. You need to go. Need, don't need to go to market for more money. So it's kind of safe. Uh, safe one in terms of a market potentially can be unstable for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Chen. Uh Oceana had uh, had has some exposure in the Philippines. Was that something that took their shares down a bit? Was there some bad news that came out of the Philippines? Uh, not particularly Philippines. They just decided to go ahead to move ahead on the Philippine on their Philippine mine, and uh, they have some enemies in the Philippines. And those, I think, they <coughs> before they have some bad blood. Before they caught, maybe in some bidding war or something, they want their property. Mm-hmm. Ocean wouldn't sell, so they keep coming out with those bad news. Uh, you know, they want to this this one. Uh, you know, they have this uh, whatever human rights, uh, mm-hmm. uh, whatever commission. Uh, they they threaten to take take back the mine, but the mine is fully permitted by the Philippine government. You know, they already start they start building. It just and then according to talk to the company, they nothing. They haven't done anything that was accused of, but they just some kind of. Uh, uh, war between the two companies. So mm-hmm. I think some some investor may give them another reason to sell. But uh, in general, this stock has almost you know eight nine bagger, almost ten bagger for me. So I think it went up a lot. So that there's a lot of profit in the stock. So when the stock start to uh, uh, moving down, so you know all these investors got scared. I think that's pretty much yeah. It. Yeah. Well, Chen, uh, how many shares, more or less, how many shares outstanding? Do you know that number right now? And, and when, what would be their cash position then, or what 
sort of cash position are they building per share, uh, given the kind of cash flow you're talking about? Oh, they're market cap right now six hundred, seven hundred million. Um, I think their their uh, their ca- their share count probably, I would say, you know, two hundred, two hundred, three hundred, maybe less than three hundred million. So you're talking mm-hmm. about. Uh, I mean, I haven't calculated probably half a dollar a share a year, something like that, of free mm-hmm. cash flow. But, mm-hmm. you know, you can calculate. Those are pretty easy, straightforward. Their capex relatively low. Yeah. Uh, and, and then they, there's most of the, the money just dropping into their bottom line. Okay, I'm going to get to Roger in a minute. I want to ask you, Chen, about one more uh, stock that I know you're hot on. One, in fact, that I've picked up uh, at your suggestion for my subscribers, and that's Pritium Resources. Talk to us about Pritium. Yes, it's run by Silver Standard X uh, CEO uh, Bob Cotman, and he came out of retirement around this. Right now, he started to assemble a dream team around this, and they have 40 million ounces of gold resource uh, in in BC, and the market cap about uh, half a billion. If you compare it to Nova Gold, which is a three billion dollar company uh, with similar resource, it looks very undervalued. Plus, they already discovered some very high Great area, and more than one kilo uh, gram per ton in gold. Mm. Okay, so very high grade, uh, over one meter intercept. So they're going to drill it out. So in turn, this could be a very high grade startup pit for that property as well. Mm-hmm. Now they're located in northern British Columbia, right, Chen? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, are there some infrastructure issues there? They may have to. I mean, it's li- likely to be a large cap project, and that's that's one question. Secondly, then. Do you feel that Pritium will be uh, will be the operator here? Do they have the people to to move this thing forward? A big project like that? Oh, I think they probably will have infrastructure problem. Okay, so they they need a, you need to build this, it, but it's a world class mine. Okay, mm-hmm. so so they are ne- right next to Seabridge, which have a fifty million ounce of. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're almost next night. Plus, they have more exploration to do. So they could have a fifty million ounce, and then. Uh, Seabridge has how much higher market cap? They're very, very close to the location, okay? But they, the market have over one billion, so more than twice of the premium. So that also gives you some valuation. And then Seabridge want to sell the property, probably monetize it this year. So that could oh. increase uh, their their prop. You know, people when people see how much they sell, you know, <laughs> they, they they can have a catalyst for the stock as well. So they have a lot of catalysts coming. They have a catalyst in. Uh, um, in drilling, their catalyst, catalyst with new resource, uh, another catalyst would be some Seabridge, you know, monetization. Mm-hmm. So, and then okay. the IPO, so it's under the radar of a lot of analysts. Well, it certainly seems to be. I, I haven't heard many people talking about it yet. Uh, uh, I know that uh, it's one that certainly you brought to my attention. Looks really good. I, I did. Uh, I did interview. Uh, Rick Van uh, Neuenheisen when I was in Vancouver, and I'll be posting that interview uh, on Nova Gold CEO. Also, uh, Bob Cordemain uh, I had spoken to, and um, we were going to probably going to do a video with him sometime in the near future. These are, but I but I think you've got uh, you're you're onto something here, Chen. Uh, don't go away though, Chen. I wanna I wanna ask Roger a couple things. Um, Roger, uh, let me ask you. Uh, w- with respect to what's going on now in Egypt, um, talk to us about what impact that may have on the oil price, gold and silver, currency markets, etc., if you don't mind giving us your thoughts on that. Well, at this point, Jay, I think that uh, 
this thing moved a lot faster than I had expected, than a lot of people had expected. And, and what's happening now is the latest thing is that uh, Mubarak in Egypt uh, is going to not run for re-election in office. He appointed an interim uh, prime minister, uh, probably who will not be voted in. They're going to have an election that appears sometime off in the future, but which made it even worse today was that the prime minister of Jordan resigned. Uh, he appointed somebody else. He didn't want to get into a similar situation. And then the next thing that happened was that uh, this man, Harari, who was assassinated about a year or two ago in Lebanon, much beloved by the people, uh, his son stepped into his shoes, and now he has been forced out. So mm. now we're looking at Egypt, Jordan, and Lebanon. All of them are going to be facing new elections and new people, and it looks to me like uh, Israel's going to be out in the wind by themselves, the last American uh, ally, so to speak. So we think that this is going to drive oil to way higher. We had technical forecast on oil at uh, 115 and 125, and now we're going to have to redo everything when prices get over 100 bucks, because we're thinking that oil could, in fact, go back to 150. Mm. Also, another point, Jay, um, on the Pridium thing, I had it, I had a meeting with uh, Mr. Quartermain personally and heard the whole presentation. And uh, they are going to be the fourth largest North American gold project. They've got 70,000 meters of drilling planned for this summer. That's going to cost over $20 million. And some of the grades and values I saw on what they had uh, were unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Uh, Bob Quartermain did tell me that uh, in, in his, he's a geologist, and reviewing these projects before they made the purchase, he found eight pages, single-spaced, of super high values within those properties. Mm. So the other thing they did, too, back to your question on structure, uh, they did purchase uh, access to the highway, 36 miles, very cheaply, as I understand it, but they're, they leased their way all the way from the mine to the highway, and, of course, as Chen mentioned, uh, Seabridge is nearby with uh, last report I heard from Quartermain was 42 million ounces. Yeah, well, certainly, uh, you know, when you're in those parts of the world, you need a lot of ounces. You need a, a big, valuable deposit to justify the huge amount of CapEx. But access is number one, and I wasn't aware of that. Chen, any comments on either uh, what Roger just had to say? Uh, about uh, about Pridium uh, or any comments on the oil price and, and what might be going on there? Because I know you've been bullish on oil uh, even before this uh, geopolitical event that's occurred in the last few days. Yeah, um, the oil I'm looking at Yemen. Um, if if <coughs> the Middle East uh, spread to Yemen, that will have a major uh, impact on oil because it's an oil-producing nation. Mm -hmm. And you know, and in, in general, the, any uncertainty in the Middle East uh, will have uh, you know oil with very positive for oil as well as gold. You know, we see gold start to rebound nicely. So uh, there was uh, uh, so many analysts came out to CNBC recently said everything was fine. You know, gold is not no longer needed. Look yep. at what happened. Well, that's, that's uh, the wishful thinking of the establishment, the people who are able to create money out of nothing and siphon away wealth from those that actually produce it. Yeah, they want to see fiat currency being, being uh, perfectly okay because that's their game. That's their, 
that's their ticket to siphon off wealth from those that create it. But enough editorializing. With respect to these, these markets then, uh, Roger, do you have some uh, technical views, uh, some chartist views on, uh, well, you just mentioned oil. What about gold and silver at the moment? Well, gold and silver, uh, you know, they, as everybody knows, they had been topping. There was a parabolic top, a curvy top down in, in the Fed gold futures, and we're now in the April contract. Last price on those, Jay, $1,338. So that, uh, gold has come back somewhat. We think now that it has found a base at 1307 uh, current price 1338 we're looking for gold to come back to at least 1365 and perhaps higher. The rallies appear to be imminent right now. We thought this morning was going to be takeoff time, but the gold chart daily on the futures, most active, uh, is going into a continuation triangle. So that says to me it's based, and the triangle is a setup for a new rally. Silver, people should understand, it, is going faster than gold has been pressured higher the last three to four weeks. Last price on the March futures, $28.42. The trading range today for silver was $0.78, cents, which is huge. For gold, hmm. it was $18. So, And the commodity currencies like the uh, Canadian dollar and the Swiss, which, are a, which is a security uh, fear and safety uh, currency, those are up today almost one full percentage point as well. And a key point today, the U.S. dollar did fall under a key support on the March index futures at 77.50. The price now down nearly 1%, the U.S. dollar, 77.16. So this is after the close. That was an important marker. So now we're looking for the dollar to fall another full point down to 76.5. Also, the stock market did go up generally today about 150 points. And that was driven by good news from UPS. But what people need to realize is retail over Christmas was much worse than, than people imagine. But FedEx and, and uh, UPS did a nice pop because more people are buying on the Internet mm-hmm. for Christmas shopping. So that's the reasoning behind that one. So the S&Ps today, 1303, they did break 1285 resistance, and they're up 1.6%. All the grains are much higher on low reserves and food supplies. Uh, oil is stuck at around 91, trying to get through 92, but we think that's only brief, and as time goes on here, oil is going to go a lot higher. Also, we did have a nice trade. It's only been on since January 11th. Uh, when our ExxonMobil calls that we recommended were up over 100% today, uh, as are some calls that weren't higher in uh, Peabody Energy on coal, Archer Daniels Midland, ABM, ADM, excuse me, on grain. All those, all those trades are good. Well, they, they're certainly working well as long as the credit system holds together. My big fear, as Chen knows, and you do too, Roger, uh, my big fear is that we're going to have another shoe to drop. We're going to have another Lehman Brothers or perhaps a, a, a sovereign a problem that could really take the markets down, cause an implosion instead of this explosion, instead of this growth in the in the uh, in in the trade, uh, let's say the, the risk trade or in the inflation trade. Roger, I'd like to come back to you just on a moment on the dollar. You mentioned some key points. You're looking for 7650. Uh, where was the lowest for the dollar though a year or so ago? Where did where did it go? Because we had we had lower levels than that, I believe. Oh yeah, we did. I think we might have gone down in the past couple of years as low as 69 and a half, 70. 
Uh, there is major support for the dollar at 74.5, 75.5. I think to answer your question about what's coming with trouble, I would suspect we're okay until May or June, but the second half of the year is shaping up with a host of problems in our, from our point of view. Okay, well, let me ask Chen, uh, Chen, if you're still there. With respect to year forecast, you've been, uh, I, I know earlier, a month or so ago, you were believing that we would have a pretty good year for the uh, inflation trade this year and even through next year. Are you still feeling that way? Um, it's, it's possible. Uh, I'm a little bit less bullish than I was, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year, partly mm -hmm. because of all these uncertainties. Uh, if oil spike uh, to 150, which is very possible once Yemen starts uh, the unrest, uh, then they will, you know we will very quickly drop to a double dip recession. Then you know the even oil trade will have to come off. <laughs> I just okay. don't know when when that will happen. Okay, so Chen, you see a rise in the oil price to 150 or over 100 bucks as being a, a real drag on the economy then. Yeah, there will potentially be a replay of 2008. We only have about two minutes left, so but I'd like to ask you, Chen, uh, with respect to China, is the boom continuing? You know, we've heard all these stories about people buying cars, the explosion. China is now the biggest car market in the world. Uh, the Chinese people are buying cars. They have to drive. They drive those cars. That's booming the oil. That's, that's creating enormous demand for energy. What do you see happening in China? Do you think this is how long do you think this this expansion in China is going to go before we have some sort of major problem? Oh, those are very hard to say. Uh, exactly timing. Uh, the from right now from other source looks like going to go on for a couple of years. Um, at the when the music stop, it's hard, very hard to say, very hard to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the problem is. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the China boom is, uh, is basically accomplished by a lot of our credit expansion, uh, expansion of the money supply. So yeah. when the government was forced to, to reduce money supply to raise interest rate, which they are doing, but they are not doing hard, you know, they, when they are really desperate need to reduce money supply, then, you know, the music, music will stop. So that, that's a concern I have. Okay, uh, one we got a minute probably left, Chen. I also want to ask you, uh, American Manganese is a company that you recently recommended. And I, it's actually I interviewed the CEO Larry Ray on uh, on a video that I did in Vancouver last weekend. Talk to us just in thirty seconds. Tell us a little bit about American Manganese and why you like it. Oh, it's uh, it's a manganese player, and there's no uh, manganese producers uh, in the United States. <coughs> okay, period. And in the in the their their space, electron electronic manganese area, 97 percent are produced in China. Uh, China basically are talking. Actually, I talked to some mining company uh, mining company in the weekend. And then they are doing a lot of consolidations, uh, basically uh, sponsored by the government. So though these are small miners together become a big miner, and then they take a, you know, 70, 80 percent market share, and then start raise, raise price. So that that's what happened to rare earth, what happened to other places like electronic manganese, 97 percent by by China. So likely the price will go a lot higher. <laughs> so the, even at current price, their IRR is over 100 percent. Okay, so if uh, the, the price go higher, their price will go a lot higher, and the manganese are needed for you know for steel, for you know for the stainless steel or all these things. So very very crucial metal for the United States. 
Chen, do you know offhand what is the symbol for American manganese? I believe it's A M Y. Apple. Yeah, uh, that's right. That's that strikes. That sounds right to me. And that trades on the Toronto Exchange. It also trades on the over-the-counter. I don't know what that symbol is offhand, but it, it certainly is an exciting story. And as I say, that will be posted sometime in the near future. I expect within the next week. My interview with Larry Ray, the CEO of American Manganese, at jtaylormedia.com. No triple W's. That's just J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R media.com. Well, thanks, Chen and Roger, for being with me. It's really been a pleasure talking to both of you, getting your views on the markets. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back in just a minute with David Skarika. He is the author of The Great Super Cycle, a new book that's just come out. You're not going to want to miss what David has to say. He's an inflationist. Let's hear what he has to say. Don't go away. I'll be right back. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Goldfields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Dave Skarika. Dave Skarika is the founder and editor of Addicted to Profits, a popular newsletter known for its stellar performance in both up and down markets. Skarika entered the financial markets at a very young age and at the age of 18 became the youngest person on record to pass the Canadian securities course. He is a regular speaker at trade and investment conferences in Canada, a regular guest on the Business News Network, that's BNN. Uh, his work has appeared in publications such as The Bull and Bear, Financial Report, Barron's, Investor's Digest of Canada, and Canadian Money Saver. Skrika also writes Gold Stock Advisor, that's an investment newsletter for the conservative media outlet Newsmax. Well, welcome, David, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. It's nice to be here, Jay. Nice to speak with you again. Nice to speak with you. Unfortunately, you're, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately for you, you're not in New York where we've had one of the biggest, coldest winters we've had in, uh, that I can remember for some time. I walk outside of my door here in Queens, and I've got uh, snow that's piled up well over my five-foot-six-inch uh, frame. So you're down there, I suppose, uh, looking at palm trees, sitting out in your patio, looking at yachts and, and the ocean and so forth. Um, well, nobody said life is fair, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and, and I get I have a lot of uh, relatives in New York, so don't worry. I've been hearing the complaining all week, uh, all winter. So yeah, I, yeah, I have to complain so. about a day when it's sixty degrees here, right? So I got I don't have much to complain about. Well, you and I have met many times over the past ten years or so at conferences in the U.S. and Canada. I can remember being on uh, panel discussions with you. Not don't always agree on things, that's for sure. But you always have a very interesting perspective, I think a very well-informed uh, perspective, and uh, that's what makes life interesting is that people don't always agree. I think we probably agree on more than we disagree on. Uh, but anyway, I haven't seen yet uh, these shows uh, very often lately. You're just uh, so, so loving that nice climate down there that you don't want to go to Toronto. And Vancouver isn't bad. I just got back from Vancouver. Didn't see you there. But what's, what's up? I haven't seen you at many shows lately. Well, what's happening is um, I'm actually doing a lot of e-marketing, and that's mm. going really, really well, uh, you know, for the newsletter. And I actually write about three or four publications, as you mentioned, in my bio, bio at the start. Uh -huh. So I haven't been doing the – I am going to the PDAC in March, but mm -hmm. I haven't doing, been doing as many as the, of the trade shows because not so much the shows themselves, but, for example, living in the Bahamas, to get to Vancouver is about a 12-hour flight with connections. Yeah. And, you know, you're kind of out of it for two or three days afterwards, you know, from the jet lag and just the traveling around. So I just, like, I have to really, really, you know, be careful with my time and what I do and where I go. And I do travel. I prefer to go to, say, mine site visits or I've been, like, I've been uh, visiting a lot of emerging markets because I think on top of gold and precious metals, that's where the opportunities are. So last fall I went to Chile and Peru and Panama and kind of did a tr and, and did a trek through South America. So that has more to do with it than anything else. It's it's nothing against the trade shows. It's just that living down here makes them you know it's a little tedious to get to. And like for example, I can get to London quicker than I can get to Vancouver. So yeah. for a lot of times, well, it doesn't make any sense. Well, certainly, David. The um, uh, you know the, the trend is in the uh, in the e-commerce side of things. We just heard from Roger Wiegand was talking about how. Um, uh, you know how FedEx and those those guys are doing very very well because of the switch to the internet. Clearly, uh, more and more things are are being sold on the internet. That's taking away from the bricks and mortar. But uh, I, I hear what you're saying. I know traveling as uh, you know to these cities can be very time consuming. 
And honestly, uh, you know, I, I think you're probably doing the right thing and uh, doing more uh, more stuff on the internet. But anyway, I'd like to dive right into your book, The Great uh, Super Cycle. And you just mentioned a minute ago uh, about how uh, you think, in, in addition to gold and silver, the uh, you know the emerging markets are where it's at. Uh, one other comment on, on your travels in South America might just mention that we had Doug Casey on the show a couple of weeks ago, and Doug is really a champion of South America, and Argentina especially. He's got a project down there. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't know about his project in particularly, but I do know a particularly, sorry, um, but I do know he's a really big bull in Argentina, and he's talked about it uh, a lot yeah. in the past, and I think he owns a lot of farmland down there and that sort of thing. You know, I Actually, yeah. it's funny, because I'm a little wary of Argentina. I, I think they have a banking crisis every 10 years. Yeah, I actually much prefer Chile or Brazil or Peru mm-hmm. to Argentina, but to each his own, right? All right. Well, maybe we'll get into that later on in the discussion because I'm hoping you'll be able to stick around with us for uh, the most, the better part of an hour if you're if you're available there. Uh, That's no uh, problem. You can listen to those uh, listen to those uh, tropical birds, I suppose, and 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 watch those yachts go by uh, while we're talking. At, uh, <laughs> life is life is a beach, as they say it. Anyway, uh, so so uh, uh, economic Armageddon you talk about in the preface. How superpowers fall and empires end, and why it is not the end of the world. Are we facing some sort of an economic Armageddon in your view? Well, it's kind of like that movie Inception, which I didn't think was actually that good. But anyhow, um, but they have these sequences in that movie where you know they're invading people's dreams. They have these things dream within a dream, and it's kind of like that in the be cycle. That you have the minor cycle, which is the cycle major bull and major bear markets in markets within the context of these major geopolitical cycles in world power. So right now I think we're in a bear market cycle for stocks. I think we've been there in the last 10 years with the S&P 500. And, but I think what's different about this cycle as opposed to the bear market cycle in the 1930s and 40s and 1970s is that this is the cycle where the U.S. kind of loses its grip on being the sole superpower of the world and the U.S. dollar uh, loses, you know, it's backing as the world's reserve currency, which is interesting because they're kind of saying that at Davos this weekend. I think that's uh, this week. I think that's a really important development because these are the most mainstream economic minds in the world, and even they're talking about you know ending the dollar as the reserve currency. Yeah. So that, yeah, indeed. That's, that's really interesting. So what I think is all empires do the same thing. They start saving. They start uh, as open societies. And then they usually have some kind of victorious war, which really breeds kind of confidence in the empire. Uh, the U.S. would have been a World War One, and then to a much larger extent, World War II. Uh, the British Empire had a bunch of key victories over the Spanish and the French. And then they kind of expand the empire out of that. And then they overexpand and essentially, uh, you know, waste the public treasury. What's interesting about the U.S., I think the treasury is being more wasted on... Uh, a collapse from within in terms of the unfunded liabilities of Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare rather than uh, the foreign ventures. The foreign ventures are pricey enough, but you could mm-hmm. actually probably get away with them if you didn't have all these unfunded liabilities occurring. Mm-hmm. So, and I think then what happens is that at some point you get a debt crisis and the empire implodes on itself. And I, that happened to the British, it happened to the Spanish, it happened to the Romans, it happened... Uh, and the Greeks and, and Egyptians, and I think it's going to happen to the U.S. empire probably quicker than people think. You know, I hear a lot of talk of, 
you know, 2040 Social Security will cost us too much. I think this is going to happen in the next 5, 10, at least 15 years at the latest. Okay, so what happens then, David, uh, if, if uh, you have this debt crisis then, does the military then have to pull back and you lose your influence in the world? For example, we know that China is expanding now, starting to build up its military. Uh, do you see uh, the U.S. military then perhaps becoming less, uh, you know, losing some of its, uh, some of its power, you know, pulling back from the 140-some countries that we're in? And then, uh, and then China or some other growing power picks up and, and takes over the vacuum? Yeah, I fully see this. The only thing, like the U.S. Uh, financial situation in terms of the, at the government level is essentially like a Ponzi scheme right now that's only being held together by low interest rates. Now, who knows, mm-hmm. best case scenario, you end up like Japan and these low interest rates last for a decade and you're able to keep doing this. But you're running deficits at 8 9 10% of GDP, so if rates were like back to normalized levels, meaning five, six, seven percent on the on the long year, on the ten year, thirty year bond, you couldn't afford this. The interest would just eat too much into the budget. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what's the easiest thing to cut back on? It's not unfunded liabilities, it's not social security, it's not taking away people's stuff. It's essentially saying, Okay, we're gonna shut down those bases in England, we're gonna shut down those bases in Germany, places where you really don't need bases anymore. And that adds to the unemployment problem, because what are all those troops going to do when they get home? No one ever talks about that, by the way. Everyone talks about, well, we need to shut these foreign bases down, but then you're going to add a whole bunch of you know, unemployed oh. males, mostly males, into uh, you know, the, the labor market, which is already yeah. bad enough at the moment. So I think that's the first thing that goes when the bond vigilantes start to really hammer uh, you know, government bonds in the United States. So then, yeah, you have this shrinkage of the empire. And China is very smart, regardless of what you think of them politically. And that I live in the Bahamas, as we noted, and they're building a $30 million stadium here. And they're going to build a $2 billion resort here. So they're essentially making friends by building infrastructure and helping to build other countries. So, yeah, that's where they're going to get their global influence. Rather than saying have a base, in a, in a country like the U.S. or actually run the country like the British did, I think what they're going to do is u- use it on a financial arm where, oh, we'll help you build roads, we'll help you mine, we'll help you build a stadium. And that's how they're going to make their global empire when they probably become the next superpower. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. It's a lot of the same thing that we've done. We've had uh, John Perkins, the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, on this show in the past. Though, And just to, just to throw this out to you, David, the uh, Perkins talked about you know how the powers behind the throne, the wealthy corporatist, the wealthy corporate interest, uh, really uh, you know how we've expanded the empire, and I guess it, it depends a little bit on whether you think that the people have any say in America. Certainly, the politicians are pandering to the people, at least with, at least verbally. But then you look and see what they actually do, and it's not many times it's the opposite. I mean, I don't see a lot of difference between an Obama and a Bush. Uh, when you cut through the uh, the rhetoric, but uh, but I hear what you're saying, and I and I think you're probably right. I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, when all hell breaks loose uh, internally here in America, when people are really really angry, um, you know, something's got to give. And and, it, and I hear what you're saying. It'd be easier for the politicians to give in and say let's let's cut the let's cut military spending. In the minute, me, meantime, you close bases, then we got more unemployment. As you point out, we're uh, we're having quite a rough time of it already, but it seems to me, David, let me know what you think about this, that we are facing in America 
definitely, no matter what happens, whether the military is the one that gets cut back most or what, that we are facing in America a declining living standard for the vast majority of, of people. I read uh, the other day that, um, actually it was on Bloomberg Radio here, they said that in much of the world, the people spend close to a quarter of their income on food. In the United States, we're spending on average about 6% of our income on food. Any thoughts on, on the relative living standards of Americans? Are we going to see the vast majority of Americans uh, have declining living standards going forward into the, into the future? Yeah, and I don't think the problem when you look at it is like in, for example, and Obama kind of talked about this in the State of the Union, and I, and then this is I'm negatively looking at it, is people tend to look at if someone in China or someone in India is doing better, their standards of living are rising, mm-hmm. and somehow that's taking away from someone in the United States. I don't look at it like that at all. I think we need to have a stable global uh, economy. And we need to have increased living standards all over the world. I think that's actually a real positive thing. So, but I think the problem you're getting is, yeah, that come, does somewhat come at, at the expense of the United States. And it just makes sense from the fact that if you're going to start a business in India or China or Sri Lanka or someplace in Asia, you can be able to pay someone 2 to $3 a day with no benefits. And regardless if you think that's right or wrong, as a businessman, that makes much more sense than starting a, you know, uh, a factory in Ohio and paying someone ten times that much an hour with benefits and health care and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to offend the American listeners, but that's just reality you know, mm-hmm. over things. And I think you just have to look at it that way. And not only that, this, let's look at it in a historical context. In 1500, the year 1500, the two largest economies in the world were the Chinese and Indian subcontinent. And then they kind of got de-industrialized in the 19th and 20th centuries when India was, you know, run by the British and when China turned communists around World War II. So essentially, we're just going back to the way history's always been with China and India as the dominant players and the last hundred years was more like an aberration, where the United States and Western Europe really, you know, dominated uh, the global economy. So that's the way you have to look at it. They're just kind of playing catch-up ball. And I don't know if it's so much into the decreasing living standards. Okay, I know savings are down. I know, but when you actually look at the way people live day to day, you know, I'm looking at my you know, flat-screen TV, and these things, you know, like... Now a lot of people don't have jobs to flat screen TVs or, you know, uh, uh, a lot of, you know, middle class Americans or, say, police officers or, you know, very middle class jobs, they might have small boats up at lakes, you know, they vacation to. So Mm -hmm. these things Mm -hmm. people didn't have 60, 70 years ago. So I'm always a little on the sideline when we talk about decreasing standard of living, decreasing standard of living. Are Mm -hmm. we seeing a little more of a have than have not? Yes. But... I still think the standard of living we have in the West currently, especially with the advent of increased technology, is much higher than any time in history of man. And the fact of the matter is, in the third world, those people want those things too. So I still think if we had the proper policies in place, we could grow here in North America, in Europe, and Asia could still grow at the the same time. I don't think it's as blunt to say Donald Trump's been ranting about recently that it's they're kind of doing it at our expense. I, I don't think that's the no. case. And in my book, but I talk about the problem now in the United States and to a lesser extent Western Europe, a lot of the wrong policies are being taken 
that are decreasing people's standard of living, and most notably, worth you talked about the, expen- the amount expended on food. Um, well, you know that's going to go up because the Federal Reserve, by printing money, and the government by not attacking its deficit problem and creating inflation, is going to decrease the people's standard of living by doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think we've certainly seen that in the, uh, in the last couple of years, David. We've seen a big rise in the cost of energy, the big rise in the cost of, uh, uh, of food. And uh, you know, I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, but Ian Gordon and others on on this show that have uh, that I that I agree with with respect to uh, with with respect to what's going on, uh, that what we're seeing is a lot of speculation. Money is pumped into the system so far. The banks are not lending it, but there's money out there for the hedge funds and for various people to speculate. We're seeing huge amounts of uh, you know of, of speculation probably in in these commodity hedges and. Who gets hurt the worst? It's uh, the middle class people that have to spend a bigger percentage of their income on energy and food and so forth. I would think. Uh, I'd like to switch to um, over, you know, to your book uh, again more directly. Uh, in the overview in your book, you said the collapse of 2008 did not breed change, but the next one will. First of all, let me ask you: Why do you think there will be a next one? Well, see, I'm a little different in that you mentioned Dean Gordon and some of these people who lean more to the deflation side. Yeah. That I think there will be a collapse. But again, I think the next collapse is in the sovereign debt of governments. We've seen that obviously in Portugal and Ireland and you know, Iceland absolutely did collapse during the financial crisis. And, um, and when that occurs, that, in my opinion, is going to be much more inflationary than deflationary. Um, because essentially what you saw in these financial firms like Lehman Brothers is going to happen to the U.S. government. And you essentially have a run on the bank. And what's happened is all the leverage that was in the financial community has now been taken on in the government. Because the government bailed everyone out, gave everyone cheap money. They had a big decrease in uh, revenues because of the recession, a big increase in expenditures. And all of the, the winding down was seen by consumers of debt is the exact opposite is happening at the government level. They're taking on more debt to kind of make up for the fact that that's happening. And I think at some point we're going to get a run on the U.S. dollar. Uh, I, I think actually what's going on in Europe is kind of a precursor. And it will start at the municipal and state level because those governments, and if you look at what mini bonds have done over the last three to six months, you'll, you'll see that's kind of starting already, are in a lot of trouble. And then it will ultimately uh, filter to the federal government. Mm-hmm. And I think the scenario has been set up for that. And I kind of wrote my book before the European crisis really started to get out of hand. Hello, David. Okay. So, so should I continue? Yeah, yeah, continue. I don't know the engineer. I don't know. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, <laughs> okay no problem. So, so, so what I think is when you have hyperinflation, it's not just you printed all this money. There's a run on the bank, and I think there will be a run on the U.S. dollar. So essentially that's why I think it's going to be inflationary, because when the government collapses, it's essentially going to cause a run on the dollar, which you know, the dollar, I guess you could say, is the stock price of a, of, a, of a country, and that will then increase prices even more. So it won't even have to do with speculation at that point. And part of that, that goes into my belief that we're in this long-term super cycle in commodity prices. Um, and this is what I find really interesting. I believe that these cycles take on lives of their own. Mm-hmm. And despite all the calls we've seen for deflation, we've seen for declining prices, the CCI, which is the major commodity index, is hitting new all-time highs. 
despite the slowdown in the economy. Okay, David, did you say the PPI? A CPI. Oh, the CPI. Now we're talking about no, the no, CPI, no, 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 not... CCI. C as in CCI, uh, uh, which is the okay. Reuters Commodity Index. It's hitting new all-time oh, Okay, up. okay, sure, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I don't believe the CPI numbers. I, I, I think they're ridiculous. I think they completely understate inflation. I don't believe that for a second. Okay. No, I don't either. And 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 let me just mention uh, John Williams, who I know you've mentioned in your book. Uh, yeah. Williams uh, Williams uh, is is talking a lot about uh, the bogus numbers that the government provides and talks about the accounting that was done before uh, before Reagan and then and then before Clinton. Uh, and so, what in in your view, what do you think the the consumer price index is, or what is John Williams saying about it more recently? What sort of numbers are we looking at, really, David? Now. Um, well, right now they're reporting about 1% to 2%, not even a percent, on the core index. And I think that we're seeing closer to at least 5 to 6%. And mm-hmm. like, if, you can, if you calculated the EPI now, the way they calculated it under Carter, some people are talking about 10%. Sure. And I think it's underdo the amount of income of that energy takes place. And then... They also underweight, like, for example, a big expense for people is, like, health care and education, and they don't really weight those things heavily into the CPI. Like, because of Obamacare, a lot of uh, people I know in the United States, and I'm sure you're one of them, saw their health care costs jump 10 to 20% last year. Absolutely. So I don't see how you can tell me at the government level that prices are increasing by 1% when people are seeing 10 to 20% increases in their health insurance. No, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, David, on that. We see food costs, we see energy costs. Of course, there's volatility there. They like to dismiss those more volatile uh, commodity um, uh, components to the consumer price index. And it's a lot of malarkey. We know, and uh, Williams, who, of course, uh, worked in, in government statistics in the past, is probably as, as educated as anybody, probably more than most of the people in the government about what the real cost is. Um, so we're looking at, at, at we're looking at some um, uh, really chapter one in your book, the explosion of debt and the end of the super bubble. Uh, you say that the U.S. is on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, we've got about probably three minutes before the break, and we'll come back and, and pick up on this. But how how do you say that uh, that we are on the verge of bankruptcy when the government can in effect confiscate everything that America that the American citizens own? You know, it owns a vast majority of the land. It owns a lot of the basic assets of America. And, you know, let's face it, David, uh, we, we have a country now in the U.S. that is no longer the land of the free and the land of the brave. And Ron Paul uh, talked to me about, uh, when I've had him on the show, he talked about if we can remain, if we can retain our liberties, if we can retain our freedoms, then the economics will take care of themselves. But when government basically confiscates and takes everything from us, and, you know, you can see it coming, can't you? I mean, as you mentioned, the local governments are in trouble. They're raising our taxes at a time when we're in a re- still in a recession, whether the government acknowledges it or not. Yeah. So, but but on the other hand, the government basically owns us, don't they? They own everything that we've got. So, but, are we really uh, bankrupt, or is it a solvency? Is it a solvency or um, a bankruptcy problem? Well, I think it's more solvency at the government level. Um, remember, just because the government owns everything doesn't mean that you're you're going to have all this prosperity, or you're really solvent. Like, you know, for example, communist Russia, Russia's got tons of resources from oil to gas to minerals, and they still had a collapse in 1990. 
So just because you have a lot of stuff in the ground or a lot of land or a lot of wealth, the government can fritter that away, you know, faster than anyone. So, yeah, I, I think they're completely insolvent. I think um, they, have, they have a spending and revenue problem, and this is essentially going to lead to, you know, a run in the dollar at some point. I'm actually shocked it's gone on as long as it has. You know, I'm from Canada, and we had a debt problem in the mid-'80s, but we still never got above about 7% of GDP on any single year, given years, and the U.S. is now going to do that for three years running. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually shocked to see that it's gone as long as it has. So I don't look too much at the interests that they could just, um, okay, they could nationalize everything and take over everyone's house and everyone's land and, you know, every, every farm and mine in the country. But, they, like, you know, look what's happening in Venezuela. They'd probably run that into the ground if that was the case, and the country would be poor for it. So I definitely think at some point they're going to be insolvent. But as a reserve currency of the world, they have an advantage over, say, Ireland or Portugal, in that they can essentially print the money and repay it back in worthless dollars rather than having to completely cut back in the short term. I hear what you're saying. I, it's interesting also um, that, you know, I, I would guess that, John Williams' case for hyperinflation, and I think you're reading your book that you're probably on on the same page with John, is that the dollar will be debased. Well, the dollar is being debased. The dollar will become worthless as the rest of the world dumps it, uh, and then everything we import is going to cost a huge amount of money. We don't we don't produce a lot these days. But there's another thing, David, and I, I know we got to go to break here, but I'd like to get your your thoughts on it when we come back on the other side of the commercial break, and that is that the U.S. has a military. You know, John Perkins, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, was on here, and he was convinced that one of the reasons, one of the main reasons we went to war in Iraq was because Saddam Hussein insisted on getting paid for euros, getting paid for his oil in euros rather than dollars. Perkins makes the point that, you know, the military, the U.S., I mean, this goes to your, your comment about being surprised the U.S. can make this thing last as long as it has. My thinking, and, and we're going to have to go to break, but when we get back, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Uh, is it possible that with the U.S. military, we just simply go around the world, beat the hell out of people, and tell them you gotta you gotta take our money, you gotta take our currency, and uh, you know, and and so we have that. We have, as you said, the world's reserve currency. How do we keep that in place? Why? I guess partly because the Chinese and others are saying, well, we don't want to dump this thing completely right now, or we're going to lose everything we have. So let's go buy some uh, some natural resources in Africa and South America. Or, Canada, wherever we can get some, to try to put those dollars to get something real, something tangible, the same thing that we're trying to do as private citizens to buy gold and silver to sort of protect our wealth. But when we come back on the other side of the break, David, I'd like to get your ideas on this military thing, because we talked a little bit earlier about, uh, you, you know, about the sustainability of a military when a country goes broke. So uh, we're going to go to break right now, and when we come back, I'd like to get your comments on that. We'll be right back. Uh, with David Skarika. <laughs> 